Hey listeners, I just want to give you a heads up that in our conversation today, we're going to be talking about suicide and uh, knowing that for some folks hearing about that can bring up some of their own thoughts and emotions. So if you are someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts, or if you know someone in your life who is that you're worried about, please reach out for help. There's two options. Well, there's lots of options, but two options. One of them is to contact the crisis text line and that number is 741-741. You just have to text hello, or you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. Here's the show. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and then suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with people working in the grief field. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. So many of our stories on Grief Out Loud are from people grieving the death or a diagnosis of someone who's really close to them, maybe somebody they grew up with or someone who meant the world to them as an adult. While today's guest does have a story like that, that's not the one we're going to be talking about. We're going to explore how seeing a stranger die can affect us. And this is not like a stranger in a news story we catch on the TV or we read about online but a stranger who dies right in front of us, and we were completely powerless to intervene or change the outcome. What can it be like to grieve when we never met the person who died, and it's someone with no ties to our life, except that we were a bystander to the end of theirs? On a random Monday morning in the Bay Area of California, Beth Duckles realized too late that she was in the wrong lane of the highway. This was a lane that would take her across the Bay Bridge from Oakland to San Francisco. And listeners, if any of you have driven in the East Bay before, you know what it's like to be on I-80 and you can't just get out of the wrong lane at the last second. If you haven't, just trust us, six lanes of high-speed traffic does not make for quick redirecting. This trip across the Bay Bridge, which was totally unexpected, ended up being something that altered Beth's life. She swerved to avoid a parked car, then she watched a man walk to the edge of the bridge, climb onto the railing, and step off. She managed to call 911, got herself across the bridge until she found a safe place to stop, and sat there shaking. In ways she couldn't imagine at the time, witnessing this man's death would become an experience that deeply connected her to long-standing grief in her own family and her mother's sudden death four years later. As Beth wrote in an essay about this experience, suicide makes a mess of everything it touches. Beth, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. There, there's so many aspects of this story with witnessing the stranger's death, the legacy of suicide in your family and your mother's sudden death in this moment though, today in October of 2018, what's it like to be in this place, looking back on all of the elements as a whole versus as you were experiencing them one by one? I think what's striking for me about grief is that it has made me different I'm a softer person, I think, because of it. I'm more willing to go there with people uh, when they're talking about difficult things. And having both witnessed a person's um, suicide and also 
the story about my mother as well and her sudden death, I feel like the, the experiences of going through all of that and dealing with both forms of grief has just changed the way I, I am in the world. Um, I think one of the things that I, is also striking for me is that I'm, I'm a lot more impatient with things that seem really surface to me. But when somebody's willing to go there and have a discussion with me that's meaningful, I'm, I'm so there. I, I always hated that platitude that everything happens for a reason, and I, do, I certainly don't believe that. But I also think when I look at all of the pieces of this, these stories, I could never have anticipated how they came together. There's no part of me that would have ever crafted this story. But that it all came together in the way that it did, I think that's also partially what changed me. So these, there were these discrete incidences of loss in your life, mm-hmm. and then over time watching them sort of weave together and uh, interact with one another mm-hmm. has created this overall change for you. Yeah, absolutely. Being softer in the world, except if somebody wants to talk about superficial <laughs> things, then maybe a little impatient. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Going back to that time on the bridge mm-hmm. with watching that man who you know climbed up onto the railing and stepped off, for a lot of people, that would be the end of it. Mm-hmm. Like you called 911. How did that come back around into your life? So... I, I I called you know the nine one one when I crossed the bridge and and or when I was on the bridge and the CHP responded and said if you'd like you can put down your name and your phone number and the the family in case they want to contact you can contact you um, so I put it down not thinking of anything and then I went back to my life and I had all kinds of challenges I I couldn't sleep very well I was struggling a little I know now that it was probably sort of a post traumatic kind of experience and I ended up calling one of those I guess it was a crisis line I tried to make sure that it was one of those ones that didn't it was okay to call if you weren't in actual crisis in that moment but I was feeling so um, lost you know I, I had these kind of flashbacks of the moment when the man stepped off the bridge and later that Christmas, I ended up spending some time with my mother and with a whole bunch of family members and friends. And I tried to bring it up. Um, I ended up talking with my mom's friend about it. And then before you know it, at the table, everybody starts listening in on the conversation. I saw my mom get more and more withdrawn. She just didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to talk about suicide. She didn't want to talk about my experience. She didn't want to hear that I had had this trauma. I knew that it was because of her mother's uh, suicide when she was young. She was 15, and, you know, as, as her daughter, as my mother's daughter, I experienced her grief and her anger and her rage through most of her life. I saw it, you know, those little things that you pick up. You know, she, she didn't want to talk about that side of the family when I had to do a family tree. She didn't want to. She talked about something being, quote, crazy, you know, that part of the family. You know, I knew that it was hard for her, but I also didn't have any language with her to talk to her about it. She Um, wasn't putting it in that context for you. You were just seeing how she was in the world. Yeah. And it took a family friend who um, pulled me aside and basically had the conversation with me and said, do you know what happened with your, with your grandmother? And it was funny that she used that word grandmother because my mom had never used that word to my mother. She wasn't a grandmother to me. She was gone. And so I learned the story. I hadn't known that my mother had been there when when my grandmother had had killed herself. So when I brought up suicide at this dinner, you know, over the Christmas time, my mom just couldn't she couldn't be with it. She tried her best. She she but that's when she said that line, you know, suicide makes a mess of everything it touches because for her that was true. 
you know, she was 15, it's really radically changed her life. A number of months later, I got a phone call from an unknown number, and it turned out that the father of the man who had had walked off the bridge uh, contacted me. And um, his name was Grant. He explained to me that his son was um, schizophrenic, had been having difficulties, but he he was an adult, so at that point there was less and less that his father could do for him. And he had checked himself into a mental institution, and then because he could check, had checked himself in, he could check himself back out again. He thinks that his son probably was hearing voices. That was one of the challenges that he faced. And a number of years before they had come to the end of their treatment options, there weren't any other uh, drugs they could try that would actually help him. You know, the, the man who, Grant, who called me, he was so... His demeanor was so loving and also so realistic. It was almost as if he had been grieving for a long time because his son had been facing so many difficult things. It's it's almost as if the best he could do in his grief was to, to love his son by putting things back in order as best he could. And calling you was part of that. Yeah. And so then the last thing he said to me as he signed off, uh, and now you can be free. Because I think he really wanted for his son's death um, to not have to impact other people. But I think, you know, that's hard because it really did impact me quite a lot. So, This conversation with, with Grant, the man's father, how has that reverberated for you over time? In some ways, I talked about the softness in the beginning. I mean, he had that, absolutely, that softness, that um, willingness to go there as best as he was able. We weren't talking in platitudes at all. <laughs> like there was nothing, there was nothing surface about that conversation. You know, when my mom died later, I had a lot of family, friends and people come talk to me because I was really close to my mother. And so I became sort of the person like Grant was for his son who went around and sort of took care of things and talked to a lot of people about how much my mom's had, had influenced them. So yeah, in a way, maybe I'm just putting this together now, but, you know, in a way he sort of modeled that for me, you know, this willingness to kind of go there and be real. The other interesting thing, so I mentioned that I had been, I struggled a little bit um, and and ended up having, you know, calling the hotline. And and then I also posted uh, anonymously on a website that I trusted. I briefly explained the situation and I said, has anyone, are there resources for people who've witnessed suicide who don't know the person? There were no resources, really, but I did get a number of responses back, actually, from some folks who had also experienced Mm. um, something similar. So I've also thought about this in terms of first responders and people who often see, you know, the outcome of suicide. There could be more conversation, I think, about the community aspects of suicide, that it affects more than just the people in the person's life. Um, you know, I just have to believe that suicide is more impactful than that, you know, that, that there are more people who, who miss that person or who are touched by this idea that somebody would do this, you know, or and, and, and really struggle with it. Over time, were, what ended up helping with some of those symptoms you were experiencing of not being able to sleep and having anxiety after having witnessed this death? Um, time, uh, was probably the best one. Um, you know, people to talk to really helped. After my mom died, I started writing more and that's how this essay that I, that 
I shared with you got born, that has also been a really cathartic process for me as well, is, is, is figuring out ways to put things into writing. And the things that often go in a loop in my head, like the image of him stepping off of the bridge, thinking of those things in terms of how best to describe them for someone who wasn't there, to, to some extent makes me feel less alone in those moments. Um, you know, I know there are other people who have seen similar things, you know, and so putting words to it makes me feel like I can include other people, I guess. Yeah, even if you're not having a direct conversation, there's just that idea that my words are out there in the world that someone's reading that maybe they can relate. Exactly. Beth, you mentioned that the conversation at the holidays pretty soon after this experience and how you were trying to share with friends and family. Did you and your mom ever talk any more about that? We really didn't. My mom, she's a, she was an Italian Catholic from New Jersey. Um, it was an ethnic identity as much as anything else, you know, for her, the family was everything. And, you know, suicide was not, that's not what you did, you know, we did have one experience where we went to, um, it's called, it called the Million Mom March, which was um, against gun, or for gun um, legislation, essentially trying to encourage um, background checks and such. And mom really wanted to go to this. She and I went and marched. I mostly did it because it was on Mother's Day and she wanted it. So I said, okay. We got stopped by a news camera. My mom sort of tucked me next to her, had her arm around my waist, and then in her typical kind of Italian Catholic way, she was like waving her hands around and talking um, really passionately about, you know, why we needed to have gun legislation and how to make sure that guns were not, you know, available to cause harm in families. And I remember really clearly she talked passionately about all of these things, but it was really the first time that she'd ever talked about it influencing our family. She never, she never wanted to talk about it. I remember later on, we, we, of course, we were on the news, so we were really excited about it. So we watched the news, and of course, they clipped it way down, so there was nothing about my mother's excited things. But I could see my little face just kind of surprised in the picture on the news because she just had never said any of those things before. So seeing this whole other side of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your, your mother's death mm. is really closely tied to this whole experience yeah. of having witnessed this man's death. Yeah, so my mother was um, a Peace Corps volunteer for a number of years and then ended up being hired by the Peace Corps to work in Chisinau, Moldova, which is the capital city. And so when she came back to the U.S., we would often do these trips various places. This time we were back in the San Francisco Bay Area. We were on the East Bay, and we had stayed at the Claremont Hotel because Mom had always wanted to stay there, and I was like, let's just splurge. Let's just go do it. And so we got this, you know, nice... the fancy hotel up on the hill in Berkeley? yep. She'd always wanted to go there, so so we did. And uh, that night we went and spent dinner with her dear friend, um, Mary and Jim. And so we had this amazing meal, and we got back to the um, hotel and just felt... We said to each other as we were going to bed, like, this is just... We have the best friends. It's just great. And the next morning, um, she had bought a new laptop, and so I was helping her set it up and do some things on it. And she was just super short, short and kind of tense, and she kept kind of snapping at me, and I just said, mom, are you, you know, what's up? Are you okay? And she said, I just have this headache. It's just, uh, I took some pain reliever and it didn't work. And so I got like a cold compress on her head and, and then she just made a noise that was awful. I thought she was having a stroke actually at the time. 
she kind of came to after it and I, I said, mom, I think we need to go to the hospital. I think something just happened. And then the part that breaks my heart, uh, she said, Beth, I'm just so scared. And I did my best to comfort her and to make sure that she felt okay. And I called our friend Mary thinking that she'd probably feel more comfortable not going in an ambulance. Um, and Mary said she was fine. She'd be right there as soon as she could. And then she, um, she made the noise again and she went back into that kind of rigid state. And, um, so I just had to call an ambulance. So the ambulance came and took her to the closest hospital and they did the scans and pretty quickly figured out that she had a brain aneurysm that uh, they thought it was probably fatal. They used that word. It's funny, I really had no idea that there was actually a thing where you could kind of collapse when you hear stuff like that. I thought it was just one of those things mm. that was like a, oh, people write about that. And it actually happened to me. I, they had to prop me up on the wall, which was so weird. You know, it's like, there's a part of me that's like having this discussion with myself. Really, Beth? Really? You're just like fainted. <laughs> But we ended up, um, they wanted to have her go over to um, the other hospital on, in the San Francisco area because they had a, a couple of neurosurgeons that specialized in this kind of thing. And so we got um, one of the special um, ambulances that took her across the bridge. And, um, of course, it was the same bridge that I had seen Grant's son jump from. I don't know. It's hard to describe it, but in, in my experience, that's that's when I felt her go. That's when I felt that she was gone. In that, that moment of driving over the bridge. Yeah, it was a little after the place where he jumped, but for me, the bridge felt like the place where she decided it was time for her to do whatever comes next. So, so it's, it's you know, it's the old bridge, too, and the Bay Bridge, so it's kind of nice because it's not there anymore. <laughs> well, they, that one came that down. That one came down. It was that span of the bridge that came down, and they put a new one on. I don't know if that's nice or not, but it, it was hard. I, I went back a few more times, and every time I went over that bridge in that direction, it was just so hard for me. It was almost like going to her gravesite. We we have a place for her that we put her ashes and things like that, but the bridge for me felt like the time when, when she left. So in that immediacy... You're having this experience, your mom dying, you're in the ambulance, you're on the bridge, so many things happening in that moment. Over time, how have you thought about the overlap of the placement? Yeah. For my mother, bridging cultures was absolutely her world, and so it's it's kind of beautifully poetic that she, you know, left on a bridge. In terms of, you know, the the suicide and my grandmother's suicide, I think... I think, you know, the experience of both my mother and I, both of us witnessing somebody's suicide, that that was influential for each of us in different ways. And, you know, it was pretty major in my mother's life that her mother died so early. And it turned out to be quite major, both that I witnessed suicide and that I also was there for my mother's death. You know, both of those experiences really changed me. Uh, I you know, the things that I've changed in my life since then, I, I ended up leaving my position as a professor. You know, the grief was so big that I I could only be unhappy about some things. <laughs> I, had to, I had to pick the thing I was unhappy about. And my mother's death was the one thing I couldn't change anything about and everything else I could. So you're like, I can change the job. I yeah. can change where I live. Yeah. So I did. I mean, I, I was pretty stubborn. So I tried really hard to make the uh, academic thing work. And 
um, and it just didn't. So I know that my mother's, um, my mother's mother's, my grandmother's suicide was really, really influential in my mother's life. I also know that my mom would have been really, really ha happy is not the right word, but I think she would have loved that she was a catalyst for me. I think she would have really enjoyed that she got to sort of shake things up in my life. Um, in an interesting way, she almost bridged you into yeah. a different way of living your life. Yeah, absolutely. As she would love that too. I mean, that would be thrilling to her. There's this great quote. Um, let's see, it was Stephen Colbert. I think he, um, he talks about the death of his mother in a GQ article, which is just fabulous. And he talks about, um, I learned to love the bomb. I learned to love the thing I most wish had not happened. Um, I'm certainly not there yet. Um, in fact, I don't know if I'll ever love that my mother died or that I witnessed somebody, you know, walk off a bridge, but it's something that like the bomb just blows up and there's nothing else you can do but work with it. You know, starting to understand that this changes you doesn't mean that I liked what happened. It just means that I'm accepting that I can change my life. Yeah, that's a really helpful way of looking at that because there can be so much pressure. I mean, like, look at all the amazing things you've done since this tragedy happened in your life. It's, you know, and it puts people in this really not great spot of having to say like, well, yes, I love myself for having figured mm -hmm. out how to integrate this experience and to change my life in ways that work for me. And I don't love the impetus for that. And I never will. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is for me. It's like, I, I, I know like in the core of my being, my mom would be really proud of me and happy with where I am now and would be so happy in her own way that her death would have kind of catalyzed some of these changes in my life. But I also still have no, I mean, it's kind of a paradox. Like I, I both, I, I both know those things and also wish I could have even just another afternoon hanging out with her. There's no part of me that's going to ever let go of wanting that, you know, even while I can be really happy with, you know, a lot of things that have happened in my life and choices I've made since then. Yeah, it's a paradox. Well, Beth, I just so appreciate you taking time to come on the show today to tell us about all of these different stories and how they've woven together to become so mm. influential in your life and who you are today. Thank you. And thank you for the Dougie Center, too. I have to say that the way that you guys approach grief is so meaningful to me, and it has taught me so much. Well, as we always say, we're glad we're here. We <laughs> wish we didn't have to be. But since we do have to be, we're very glad that we're here. And listeners out there, I will link to the essay that we've referred to in this conversation. It's beautiful. Beth is an amazing writer, mm -hmm. so I will I'll put that in the show notes. You can check it out. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you have been listening and if you are someone who struggles with thoughts of suicide or you know someone in your life who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. You can always text hello to the crisis text line. That number again is 741-741. Or if you want to call, you can call the National Suicide Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255 which translates into talk if you have a phone that still has numbers on the on the keypad. So listeners, thanks for being part of our audience. If you want to hear any of our past episodes, you can find us on our website, dougy.org, or any other way that you get your podcasts. 
As I mentioned before, we're coming up really quickly on our 100th episode. So if you are a listener out there and you would like to share how the show has affected you, please send me a short voice memo or an email. I'd love to get your words into that 100th episode. You can send emails to help at Dougie.org. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>